This podcast brought to you by ACES, the American Society of Information Science and Technology, the Society for Information Professionals, by the IA Summit, the premier gathering place for information architects and other user experience professionals, by Boxes and Arrows. Visit boxesnarrows.com slash about slash participate to be a part of your peer-written journal. And special thanks to Axure and Morin for sponsoring Boxes and Arrows, as well as the many other sponsors of the IA Summit. One thing is brutally clear. No teams, in fact, no two individuals seem to produce deliverables like wireframes the same way. And that's a shame. Too many designers seem guided by the flawed notion that not just design, but documentation too, must be ever unique. This leaves readers flustered, confused, and often dismissive. Nathan Curtis, founder and principal at 8Shapes, shares practical techniques that his organization has learned from, taught, and embedded in teams. Just as important, attendees learn of challenges and pitfalls so they can avoid failures Nathan and his team have made along the way. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks to Jennifer Bomback and Samantha Bailey and, and the whole ACES crew for, for making this IA Summit happen. It's always a great event, and it's, it's great to be talking. So uh, what we're going to talk about today is this concept of a documentation system. So at 8Shapes, we're a small consultancy out of the Washington, D.C. area, but what we get tasked with oftentimes is going to work with uh, large user experience teams to help them with how they're communicating their design through the range of deliverables that they produce. And so we do things like give workshops and, and consult, but oftentimes we'll actually uh, work with them to build out some sort of system for creating their documentation. Um, at, the, at its heart, the system is really just a set of templates and tools and techniques, but even more so, it expands into this other, t other types of things that I'm going to talk about over the course of the talk. Um, the rationale that teams have for building this stuff is really... Three big things. They come and they say, we want to be more consistent, we want to produce stuff faster, and we want to be able to reuse a lot of the assets that we've produced over time so that we don't have to keep reinventing the wheel over and over again. Those are the three big themes, but oftentimes as an undercurrent or as an additional goal, they will have things like, we want to be able to collaborate better, um, and collaboration isn't just between information architects, it's actually across a wider range of disciplines. Uh, but also the scale of the assets that they build out, the portability between different designers, um, and even building in different standards so that ultimately the user experience team can have more credibility within the organization. So when we're working with teams, it's really a three-step process to build out these systems, uh, part of which I'm going to share with you today. The first step is that we actually go into the team and just take, take an, a look at what their culture is, what their organization is. We interview a lot of folks. We give them surveys. We get feedback from the designers about their preferred tools and really even their emotional responses to, well, what, we're going to have to use some sort of system for producing our doc documentation, what their concerns are. Um, and then also we start a little bit of the planning because ultimately we'll assemble this repository of assets for them to create designs like comps and wireframes, but also so that they can communicate those designs through deliverable documents like an annotated wireframe document or some competitive analysis or something else. Ultimately, the, uh, the engagement ends with some sort of adoption period, right? We have to go... We take all those assets that we've built for them, and we have to teach them how to integrate that into their process um, through training, through documentation, whether it's document-based or web-based, through demos that we give, and then ultimately, hopefully we stick around for a little while so we can see how they're using the system, give them some coaching-like feedback, and also give them some reviews. 
Now, teams often are coming to us because Eight Shapes loves wireframes, right? Uh, we love to produce wireframes, and it's almost like now this dirty four-letter word, wire, that nobody wants to talk about anymore because we want to sketch, and then we want to prototype, and there's this big honking wireframe right in the middle of the process that everybody wants to get rid of. But to us, we're working with a lot of large user experience teams that still employ wireframes as a very um, core part of how they're communicating that experience, both to their stakeholders as well as to development staffs, engineers, QA, and so on. So we build out these big sets of wireframe uh, um, components and libraries so that they can produce things, these things faster. And oftentimes, it starts with right, a template. We take a look at their design system, and we get a feel for what are the different grids that they have in play. Right? Oftentimes, when you have a wireframing system, it's, it's helpful even though your design isn't meant to be perceived as pixel perfect, you as a wireframe have those different containers that you can put and drag and drop all those different pieces in to assemble a page design. But we also think about what are the different types of layouts they're going to use. Typically, that wireframe template is used to have one page on it only. Um, and we also have some standard ways that we think about what are the layers that they're going to use. Particularly if these things are going to be portable across resources, it'll be important that everybody's thinking the same way about how they're organizing their artwork versus the annotations that might be on there. And then also a lot of styles, this, this repository of headers, bulleted lists, titles, um, form labels, form error messages, and all those different types of things that you always put in your wireframes. And the visual design staff may have already realized some typographic standard that we can imply to a certain degree what that visual hierarchy is within the wireframe itself. Of course, wireframe systems also come with a big collection of elements, right? You have things like drop-down menus, all your different form controls like checkboxes and radio buttons. This is all the basics, right? But you also have maybe some custom icons that you see proliferating throughout their design that you can mimic and even make little clickable buttons that appear in blue instead of just your standard gray outlines. But teams need these libraries, right? And every information architect that I talk to already has their own stencil. But honestly, in a user experience team, oftentimes they have like five or ten different stencils across a range of products. And in that way, we can start to bring them together to start communicating a little bit more consistently. To be frank, a big part of the engagement that we work with uh, large user experience teams is that there are large dot-com presence that has invested tens of millions of dollars in creating this user experience based on a standard set of page types and, and different chunks of those pages, what we call components, that they want their designers to use over time because of the degree of that investment. Not every new project is a big blank canvas for the designer to look at a white page and completely recreate it. But instead, almost always, the header is the first thing you slap on there. And you know what? 98% of the projects don't change the header. So just put the header on there. And then there are different sidebar elements. And then different ways to put a carousel or other ways that a, a particular design system has manifested how they want to solve those design problems so that designers can reuse those pieces as page chunks and then work on the specific things that they're concentrating on for their particular project. So we build out these big wireframe libraries. And on the, le the left-hand side, or the, gosh, my goodness, um, yeah, the left-hand side, uh, they, have, they end up having these big panels of all these different components they can choose from. They, they're categorized, they have tagged keywords, lots of things, but ultimately they take from those panels, drag them into a screen design, and ultimately they can assemble a page in real time. So as they're dragging and dropping all these different pieces from that component library, ultimately it composes a page design that looks a lot like a fake H-Shapes website in this case, but a lot like their dot-com presence so that 
all those different holes in the design that they need to work on, whether they're working on the sidebar or maybe they're going to work on the part in between or underneath that tab container, they can start to focus on those things. And really these components give them a great double-pronged approach in terms of they imply the standards of everything that's already been built. But at the same time, they serve as a great starting point for them to evolve and adapt the design to solve the problems of their particular project. At the same time, they, once they get this component library, lots of teams invest a lot of money in category pages and product detail pages and the shopping cart and lots of other key pages in their experience such that they'll build out actual libraries of page types as well. They drag that page type, and so now they don't have to build a, and assemble a page from all these different pieces and parts, but they just drag the whole page. And maybe it's not even an IA that's doing that, but a site strategist or a publisher or another member of the user experience team like a content strategist that wants to create the layout and then communicate something else about that design, even though they don't have to have this pixel-polished piece of artwork out of Photoshop, but instead just more rapidly create a wireframe. So those page libraries come into play. So what does this enable teams to do? That actually enables them to produce wireframes much more quickly. They start to produce one wireframe, and then another, and then another, and modularize out different bits so they can reuse them across wireframes. And they end up having this vast repository of screen designs that they can use to communicate something about the design, either through an annotated deliverable, a prototype, or some other purpose that they want to use, maybe just print out and put on the wall. But then a key distinction emerges in terms of how we end up thinking about our deliverables. There's actually the screen designs we, do, we create, which depict what the person ultimately, once it gets polished and coded and implemented, they'll see in the actual browser window if you're doing website design. On the other hand, up to this point, you haven't seen one annotation. You haven't seen one way in which a designer or someone else is going to communicate something about that design that isn't already evident within the design itself. And I'm going to go ahead and refer to that as a deliverable. When you're thinking about creating your systems for documentation, for H-shapes and for a lot of teams, it makes sense to actually split those two things apart into separate templates. Why? Because the first thing is, this thing is 950 pixels wide. This thing's 11 inches wide. And so the fact of the matter is, they have different units of measurement. And for you to embed everything into one, you start needing to make compromises. Another part of that compromise, when you start to embed all those things in a single template, is that you have really have to blend these grids together in a way that you're thinking about not just how you want to lay out the design, but also how you want to lay out your annotations too. Another distinction is that the typography is actually different between the two. A page title of your web page might be an H1 tag that has some specific CSS typographic standard associated with it. If you're deliverable, it's that thing that always appears in the upper left and has a completely different typeface and size to it, and it's used for a different reason. So really, the purpose of these two things end up being very distinct. This is communicating what a screen design is. This is trying to communicate via the combination of that design or a picture of the, of the, uh, of the design and also all the other words or annotations around that to communicate something about the experience, not to the user, but to the stakeholder that needs to understand something about it. So for the rest of the talk, that's all actually, you're going to see wireframes, but the rest of the talk today is going to be about the deliverable side of the house. How do we wrap and communicate, wrap that uh, design and communicate things about it in systematic ways so that we can be faster and more effective in the documents we produce. When I think about deliverables, one of the things that recently came out was Peter Morville had a post on his website that talked about this UX treasure map. And what he was doing was um, actually just trying to communicate a lot of the different things that we produce during a user experience design process. 
One of those things might be wireframes, right? We already were talking about those. Um, but what HShapes isn't just a wireframe production unit, right? We're user experience designers too, and we produce a lot of other things, whether it's a storyboard or it's a scenario or it's some sort of annotated spec or a style guide. And actually, all those different deliverables are different things that we actually use that deliverable template for. It's not just for annotating wireframes, but it's actually to communicate a lot of different things about the user experience across the process that we engage. To be honest, we actually use that deliverable template for other things, too. We use it uh, for our contracts, for proposals, trifolds. We even use it for offer letters. Um, people say, wow, it's a really polished offer letter. It's not like written in Microsoft Word. That's kind of cool. Um, and even um, Chris Dietze, who's in the office, said, and we don't necessarily endorse this, but he used it to uh, create his weekend list of things to do in his, his garage. He came to work the next week and said, guess what I used the system for? It was awesome. And we were like, you're kind of weird, but that's kind of neat, too. So there's a lot of different common deliverables that we produce that aren't just limited to wireframes. It might be a strategy document or a specifications document. It might be authoring some sort of persona documentation or having a starting point for creating that mental model that we've been working on with our team. Just as much as it's not only IAs, other people might use the same type of documentation to produce things like style guides and comp specs or some sort of content strategy, what have you. And to be honest, yeah, Jason's worth it. This is his offer letter amended to adjust the value so you don't actually know. But this is a picture of a deliverable template where, given the fact that he helped stay up late last night to help us put this download, I thought we'd recognize Jason and uh, we can give him a hand at the end of the, end of the talk too. So when you have these deliverable templates, actually there's just four. And the only distinction between them is the size and the orientation that you need to pick from. I'm a big fan of letter landscape. That's, everybody has letter-based printers. It's, it's a very accessible size. And landscape affords me the opportunity to put a picture on the left and a lot of words on the right. But at the same time, we heard early and often from our uh, customers and uh, the UX teams we work with that, hey, I need a much taller sort of legal portrait-oriented thing because all I want to do is print out the screens. I want a quick way to put all my screens in one document, print them out so we can, we can look at them and mark them up. Another person said, well, I'm doing a lot of research reports, and oftentimes I want to present those in a letter portrait size. And then there are some teams, although not very many, particularly of the consumers of the documentation, that have access to a tabloid printer, particularly a tabloid color printer, where that kind of template comes into play too. But to be honest, most of my time spent producing letter landscape stuff. So you need to pick that first. Then when you open up the template, it's actually, where's all the cool template stuff, right? There's only two measly pages. There's a cover page and an interior page. Why? Because we try to keep that baseline template pretty simple, to keep it flexible, to enable us to use it for a lot of different purposes. Um, and really, when you open it up, you'll see that interior page, because really, that's probably where I'm going to start authoring. And the very next thing I'll do within that interior page is just do that, what we call the document metadata. Really, just put the name of the deliverable, for example. There's a number of text variables in our template, so you can name it, say who's authoring it, and always sort of empower yourself to take advantage or to declare that, hey, I'm the author of it, as opposed to not having an author and sort of have it be this faceless, nameless document floating around. But also the contact information, like my email address, um, and the version number. Really basic stuff, right? But it's just part of the template, and it makes your life easier and faster. Once I start working on specific pages, all I do is click on the page title, and I type over what the actual page title is going to be. That's actually a really handy trick because, number one, the page title object's already on the page. And the other thing is it ties it to the table of contents that I'll show you a little bit later. But to be fair, 
a lot of these documentation systems require some learning, and sometimes you need to know keyboard shortcuts. This ends up being the only keyboard shortcut you have to know, because what you're actually doing, if you're familiar with something like Visio, you're taking something from a background and you're instanching it, or you're over, what's called overriding, and putting it onto the actual page itself so that you can edit it. But keyboard shortcuts are also helpful in making you more efficient over time. The next thing is, okay, now I've got a page, right? This is one of those interior pages. I'm going to put a wireframe in it. So this is an example of that collection of different types of objects that we have where if I want to have a wireframe and I want that wireframe just to have that little jagged edge on the bottom because I want to communicate that I don't see the entire screen design, I just drag that piece onto my canvas. And then the next part of it is I'll go to my wireframe files. If you remember all those different wireframes that we produced, they're all in the separate files so we can reuse them. Just drag that into the frame, too. And when we drag it, what happens is that frame is already pre-styled so that even though the, the wireframe is, if, if you looked at the two files, a much larger visualization, it just fits it. It snaps it into place based on the size of the frame you put it in, which is a really nice, effective way that you don't have to resize stuff and move it around. It just fits right. But a big key way that we think about our uh, assets within our documentation system is that we like to think of how to creative really creatively reuse them. So here we're looking at just a set of four frames, and I took those wireframes and I just dragged them into place such that now that I've got four wireframes beside one another, it's actually a product page, a shopping cart, a checkout page, and a receipt, I can then overlay a number of different annotations to communicate what that flow is. And that's just by connecting them with arrows and adding little figure titles. And now I've got a nice little storyboard with my wireframes too. All it is is just a different page on that same deliverable document. With the system that we have, we have a number of different deliverable elements. There's all sorts of different wonderful symbols that we reuse over and over. It might be a symbol of a person or all these different notched markers that we can use to annotate the design or a lot of different types of frames that we saw in that previous uh, video that we, we saw before. All those are just sort of in the system so that you can use that and be consistent with what you're doing. So that now that we've got a wireframe in the design or in the deliverable, we can take, drag those markers, and as I cut and really copy and dr drag and copy each one of those, they're just automatically numbered, right? I don't have to think about having to, you know, highlight two, highlight three, highlight four. It just makes it pretty easy to do. At the same time, if you remember, we talked about those wireframe page types when we were thinking about screen designs. We think about this in terms of deliverables, too, and this is sort of where we totally start geeking out. Right? We need an easy way, if we're going to create a mental model, that we don't stare at a blank page and have to add all those boxes and create the separating bar and start to color each of those different pieces. Or if we're going to create some sort of color palette or an annotated component. Or if we're going to do a persona in this case. Instead, why can't I just go to my little library, drag a persona template over there, thanks Todd Warfel for this, and now I've got a nice set of placeholders or starting points to document my persona. Put the image here, write a description there, have all the attributes on the bottom, and if you did some really cool data-driven stuff, go ahead and put your uh, sort of modified box plot up in the upper right-hand corner. All that stuff is really placeholder text. But at the same time, it's up to me as a designer to judge which stuff should I strip out. Do I not actually need influencers and applications or whatever those attributes may be? Okay, well then just remove them. Don't fill them out. But at least there's a standard baseline so that as we communicate these personas across projects, people know what to expect and can interpret them well. 
This also gives us a chance to talk about what our documents are going to be early in the process. On the right hand, or on this side, the left hand side, um, is a whiteboard that Chris, Dimple, and I, three people from HShapes, talked about a project and we said, okay, we're at a stage, we need to create a document, we're going to produce a lot of wireframe artwork, but we also need to communicate the strategy. So Chris was thinking about those pages along the top, we sketched out, okay, what types of pages do we want to have? And then Dimple and I were sort of negotiating on all the pages underneath and decided Dimple's going to produce a lot of that wireframe screen design artwork and then she'll just let me go ahead and take it and annotate it within the, the deliverable to, commu to communicate certain things about the design. This enabled us to really think about how we're going to co-author a document and take each of those pieces or chunks of the document and author them together. But now that we've got all these page layouts, like that persona page you saw me drag in to the, to the document before, and now we're starting to plan our deliverables a little bit, you can even start to think about, well, you know, over the course of the next year, I'm a UX manager and I want my team to produce a lot of competitive analyses. Thanks, Livia Labate, who was sort of helping me think about these kind of things. She wanted all of her vendors and, and internal people to think about how can we do a competitive analysis such, in such a way that our, our customers within the organization can have proper expectations about what we're going to produce. And so we thought about, okay, well, you need some sort of executive summary, some basic front matter of the deliverable. You need to communicate what your approach was, who were the competitors. You need a whole bevy of examples. And then afterwards, let's summarize with the key findings, some comparative tables, and ultimately the recommendations. Well, with the system, you can actually, don't be afraid of the XML. Don't fear it. It's just a bunch of tags that have what page layout am I going to use, how am I going to title the page, and just because I want to create that table of contents more easily, how do I want to style that title? Such that the next step is, I go into InDesign and there's actually a script that you guys get access to that you just click on the script, it asks for two things. What's the deliverable template? Letter layout, letter landscape, okay. And then where's that XML file that basically describes what your deliverable is? And so what happens is, it just then scripts each of those different pages, takes those layouts, places it on each of those pages, titles the page, and ultimately you could just go to the second page and add a table of contents. And I'll talk about that in the next slide. And you've got a nice starting point for your analysis. Now, all of these different types of pages are in Dan Brown's book, Communicating Design. I totally ripped them all off. But um, this is a, a two-by-two two plot for a comparative analysis, right? Okay, I'm not going to use this every time. So part of the judgment is, well, I see all the different types of ways I can compare all these sites via tables and plots and so on, but what I can do is just strip that out and delete it and use some of the other stuff that was near that in the starting point, and I'm still communicating in a pretty standardized way. So as I talked about those page titles, right, there are actually a number of different styles you can use for those page titles. Some of them will auto-number different sets of, of pages within your document, but at the same time, all you do is go table of contents, add a standard table, and it just adds all the, the pages in a nice ordered list. And if you separated your document into chapters, it gives you that too. You know what this is most helpful for me? This is what I actually tell them to go to page two, let's take a look at the table of contents of the document we're reviewing today. That's my almost ag implicit agenda for, for what we're going to talk about. It's a nice little trick because it sets the expectation and, and gives them a sense of what's in there, and then we sort of dive in. Or I could say, you know what, we're not even talking about, in this case, the design strategy and framework. That's all the stuff from our previous meetings, but it's in there for your reference. Let's dive into the map and flows, which is on this page. So when we're talking about publishing documents, right, this is InDesign, so you publish PDFs, right? Oftentimes we're publishing lots of different types of PDFs because we're thinking modularly about how we want to communicate the design. But another nice aspect is with CS4, we've actually started to create interactive flash swifts that connect those 
wireframe pages together. So in a sense, those wireframes are feeding a bunch of deliverable documents that we're PDFing. But at the same time, we'll take those wireframe, wireframe documents that we produced and also organize them into a clickable prototype. Maybe it's just to demonstrate within our design team or to a stakeholder, or maybe, and we have, we will use it for a usability test. So just before the summit, uh, I asked a question, what do you guys think about that big black bar at the top? It's sort of almost one of the sub-brands of, of how this deliverable works. And people said, we think it looks really cool. It distinguishes the document information from the actual content. But when you print it out, it kills a lot of trees, right? Um, so what we did was we actually just added another layer, made it so that when you PDF it, you'll see the black bar. But when you print it out on an HP printer, it just shows you this little gray thing. Uh, the little gray bar and then the white background on the top. So it's a lot of little tricks like that that we've included over the past three years that hopefully make your production of these documents a lot faster so that this aura of takes too much time, you know, people don't use it, it's be and make it easier so that you can just whip these things out much, much more rapidly. Now, when we work with teams, some of them just say, put our logo, take your logo off and put our logo in its place. Other teams say, hey, can we skin this? And actually, skinning it's not all that hard. There's really four key things that you end up doing. You swap the logos. You can change the background that's really only in two places. Um, you can then add your own typography. Since we have this whole set hierarchy of styles, there's two styles right at the top of the tree for your display font and your body font. And everything else inherits from that. So if you don't want Myriad Pro and Times New Roman, change it to Trebuchet MS and Helvetica if you want to. And that, that's what uh, this particular client did. Then even those annotation markers, even though they're coming from those libraries, they're all sourced from a collection of five different styles. We love orange, right? We're eight shapes. But at the same time, some clients will say, actually, all of our comps, our whole visual system is based on a brand of orange. So we need to choose a different color, change the styles such that when all your designers are dropping those pieces in or those annotation markers in, they'll be green or they'll be blue or they'll be red, whatever color you choose to annotate your designs. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit and just talk about what the system is. You've actually just seen it sort of in a real sense, constructing different deliverables and so on. And ultimately, at the bottom line, is it's a big zip file that has all these different assets in it. You have those four deliverable templates that you use as starting points for creating your documents. And then you have these subfolders of page layouts, elements you reuse, and even those big standard documents if you even got that far and wanted to be that serious about it. And so when you think about the system, a common way we talk about it is you might want to produce wireframes and deliverable documents, and that's the part inside the box, using all those templates and libraries that are outside. And so we create this bigger ecosystem of all these pieces and parts that you can reuse over and over again to help yourself produce these documents faster. Now notice the deliverables are on top, the wireframes are on the bottom, and oftentimes as IAs, that's how we think of our view of the world. But the deliverables persist even when you change the type of artwork you're including. The way to think about comps or what the visual designers produce, they already do it this way. Think about how a PSD is. It's a screen design. They place it in some sort of other document when they need to add all their red lines unless they're just delivering that single PSD file. So oftentimes, it's instructive to, to learn from our peers and see how they're architecting their deliverables and see some of the opportunities that we might have to map our component libraries together, or map some of our page starting points together, or even just map that template together so that people are using the same styles and grids and so on. As we distribute the system, it's really honestly just a zip file. It's a bunch of templates that you can start with, and honestly, it's all source based on Adobe InDesign. And so that gets to this tool question, right? Okay, 
We use a collection of Adobe products, and that's not necessarily what all the IAs use. There's this fact of the matter is that a lot of people in this room, if not almost all of you, don't use InDesign, which is fine. Great to, there are a bevy of great tools out there that we all use to solve our design problems. And so what we get asked oftentimes is, why do you guys use InDesign? I'm an IA. I use PC. I use Visio. I'm an IA. I'm on Macs. I use Graffle. And they're both tool, great tools, and honestly, people at HShapes use both of those tool, tools too. But why do we use InDesign for our systematic approach for producing most of our deliverables? The first reason is because it's cross-platform. We work with big teams, and those big teams think of a big corporate.com presence that have their own internal staff, which more often than not have both platforms, but also work with a lot, a lot of vendors who either are totally unpredictable about their platforms or are big enough that they demand that they use their own. And so when we build these documentation systems, it's important that we create a collection that everybody can use together. Why InDesign? It's also really good for vector-based drawing. To be honest, it's just as powerful as any of the other tools, but it's not necessarily powerful for connectors, snap, and glue. And I'll get back to that. What do you use those for? You use them to create nice visualizations like maps and flows and concept models and so on. But it's not perfect with that, but it's actually extremely powerful with a lot of its other pieces. One of those is how modular it is. You saw me reusing different wireframes in, in my deliverable file, but actually you can almost envision how I could reuse those same wireframes as a researcher reporting on the results of a usability test. The way I'd annotated it in the deliverable is completely different. But the actual source artwork that I'm using to produce that deliverable is coming and sourced from the same repository of design work. There's also powerful styles in InDesign. Uh, I won't go too much into that. But the big, another big factor is, as UX designers, not everybody is an IA. And I'll be honest with you, there aren't a lot of people out in the visual design community that are using Visio to produce their comps. And so they're actually more adept at using InDesign than the IAs are. So that's actually a leg up that we have when we're trying to train folks. When we thought about recombining some of the different products together, the first step that we did, and this is sort of circa 2005, was we put InDesign as our deliverable producer, it's that document producing paginated tool, and Illustrator from a wireframing perspective. Great drawing tool, great style, great modularity. And so those two things could be threaded together just like you see us using InDesign for both of those. Why did we change and start using InDesign for both? Well, in CS, when CS3 came out in 2007, you could include one InDesign file into another. And so that empowered us to create these big hierarchies or relationships across all of our deliverable documents and designs that having one tool from a manager's perspective is attractive. Having um, really one tool that you need to maintain and build assets for ends up being a really good way to start off. Does it mean that Illustrator is out the window? No, I use Illustrator all the time. That's the tool I use to create concept models, for example. But just as much as thinking about the IA's perspective, we also in insert perhaps Photoshop from the visual designer's perspective for the design portion. Or maybe you're thinking about using Fireworks as a prototyping tool. Or one team actually said, forget InDesign and Photoshop on the design side. Let's use Fireworks as a single tool to let both of those disciplines, visual design and, and IAs, work together within the same template framework and almost escalate the fidelity of the design as we share that file over time. Pros and cons. I'm not necessarily a believer in that, but it was an interesting way to think about how to use tools to solve problems and promote collaboration. Collaboration even comes in when you're thinking about content, too. InDesign is a great publishing tool. It comes from that print 
part of our culture. And part of that culture is the editing process and the authoring of actual copy that gets threaded into your designs. And so in, InDesign actually has this sister product called InCopy that an editor or a copywriter or a content strategist could use to actually flow in copy into our artwork wireframes and even into our deliverables. Think, you've got a wireframe page and they want to control a lot of that copy. You can create the relationship between the two so the interaction designer is doing artwork, layout, structure, behaviors, and the copywriter is actually doing the copy. And in the same breath, maybe they have a list of 25 error messages, but it's generally a design spec that the IA is authoring. They thread that in in that way. They don't even need to know InDesign. They have a much simpler, almost like text-based way that they're producing all their content. And so that speaks to the fact that you can have these different disciplines collaborating together. So you have an IA using InDesign for wireframes. You have a visual designer using Photoshop. You have a content strategist using InCopy. All those tools are blended together from the perspective they're not just Adobe Creative Suite, but we've embedded the common styles and the common grids and a lot of the other common aspects like layers and so on so that each of those, design, or each of those uh, assets or templates are speaking the same language across the design team. And they really foster that collaboration such that when they're all producing deliverables, well, guess what? They can just all use the same templates if they're going to produce deliverables at all. The system is also these techniques, right? We're talking about relating multiple files together and creating these repositories of different component page chunks that we want to reuse in our designs over and over. It's a little bit of a hump for some folks. They're used to stencil, Visio file, everything's in one place. I have a document on my, um, on my desktop that's a single document that houses everything. It has a lot of convenience, right? And it's really effective for producing some quick stuff. But at the same time, it's inherently far less modular, so it has those drawbacks too. So as the as a IA starts to adapt to this new way of thinking about separating their design from their deliverables, they need to start to rethink, okay, how am I really chunking out this design? I start my design by working on a single page. And as I create the second page and the third page and the fourth page in different files, I start to notice that things are being duplicated. So I strip them out into those component files, and then I start to reuse both that component artwork and that page artwork and start blending those together in, in more powerful deliverables to communicate at different levels of the experience. So I have this photograph here. I'm sort of the guy on the sidelines with the cool sunglasses watching these teams trying to mount this wall, right? And sometimes it's not pretty because InDesign is not a self-evident tool when you open it up, right? It is obviously fostering a lot more power in some respects, and it, it gives us a lot of advantages. But it's, it's up to the team themselves to pull themselves over that wall and learn what the templates can do for them. Maybe they just adopt them to be fast and just produce wireframes. They could care less about personas, mental models, and all those other deliverable templates. Or maybe they're not interested in creating a big component library, but they're cherry-picking just a few of the key design elements in the, or a few key deliverable elements that they want to be able to reproduce over and over. There's enough stuff there that you can really pick and choose your battles, but it is going to take some adjustment. One person I work with, and I won't name names, but we had about a 10-minute IM conversation where she was saying, how do I do flows in InDesign? This was early in our doc system days where, honestly, I'm, I'm sort of an InDesign whiz. I spend a lot of time in it. And for me, creating flows is, is easier in InDesign than Visio or Graffle. Gasp, I know. It's kind of crazy talk. But for me, that it works well. And so I was trying to describe to her, okay, well, here are some of the key features of InDesign that you would use for flows. But it, it turns out that an IM uh, bit that you can't see right above it, she had uh, a deliverable that was due in five minutes. She hadn't spent any time learning InDesign, and she had really pretty much resisted 
trying to invest time in being a practitioner using that specific tool. So her next thing was she, she was really grateful, but she just felt daunted because her boss hadn't really crafted any time in her schedule to adapt to a new tool. And she just felt like, I've got a deliverable, and I've just got to get my head down and get it done. This isn't the best tool for me, and it's not going to happen right now. And so I sort of retorted, tried to at least have some lessons learned here and say, well, you know what? We created a, a video that you create this big login flow. It takes like five minutes. And you can see all the different features of InDesign work together in case that's what you want to use that tool to communicate. But I think it's indicative of some of the lessons we've learned over time where we've had really positive experiences with teams and also some really big failures too. The first thing that I've, I've come to learn is that you, I need to encourage people to use the tool that's going to solve their problem the best. If you're working within this wireframe library aspect and the UX organization really wants you to produce standardized wireframes so that you're not reinventing the wheel every time, well then use the templates, right, to create the wireframes. But if at the same time you're an OmniGraphle expert and you can open up OmniGraphle, create some huge concept model in, in five minutes as opposed to learning InDesign in four hours, then use OmniGraphle to produce that, produce a PDF and place that into your InDesign deliverable document. And guess what? You've optimized your use of both tools. There is a tool switching cost, and so communicating that to some of the different people we work with, um, we try to focus on the benefits and rationale, but also be empathetic to what they're going to have to do. If they're a junior designer, they're not really even all that comfortable with Visio, actually maybe that's an easier candidate to work with because they're far more open to learning a new tool, and they don't have all these embedded assumptions about shortcuts and ways that you know, Visio works in terms of choosing vertices versus a direct selection tool in um, InDesign or an Adobe product. We also try to teach them through multiple channels. So videos work really well for some people. They see, okay, I need to do the page title. How do I do that? Okay, in 15 seconds, they click on a video, they watch it, they know, okay, keyboard shortcut, boom. They learn it once, they've got it. Other people, they don't even feel like they have time, but they want to be able to go to some index of documentation or some instructional user's guide, and that works for them too. too. But the good thing is, is we try to provide ample enough starting points and try and communicate where they are to people so that they can try and try out different pieces and become adept at what they need to. So there's this aspect of homework. We had a team adopt a documentation system, and then three months later I came back to give uh, a day workshop on annotating the design. It had this undercurrent of the documentation system, but it was really how do I mark up wireframes, what, what are some pros and cons of doing specs, that kind of stuff. So I gave them homework beforehand. I said, here are two or three screenshots. Place these in a page of your deliverable and then annotate it with specs. And these are the six different versions I got. And this was a huge eye-opening experience for me because even though you might have all those different pieces and parts that you can reassemble into your own deliverable to try and communicate something about the design, everybody on the same team that had learned the same tool with the same templates communicated in an entirely different way. Such that one person, although I didn't tell them the audience, and that was intentional, and they hated me for it um, after we talked about the exercise, one person was talking about design objectives and primary and secondary users and being very lofty with the language, which is appropriate at one point. Another person was just talking about behaviors. But most of the people that thought, okay, specs means detailed behaviors, organized and authored them in different ways. So this tool is not going to teach you how to write. It's not going to teach you how to do technical writing or write annotated specs. But you can refer to some of those page starting points as flavors of maybe some ways that might work with your, for your team. One of the ways that we talk about writing those specs is via outlining. Put the artwork in. Mark up that artwork to the different elements that you want to talk about. And then on the other side of the page, first just list the elements. 
And then for each of those different elements, list the things you want to say. I want to, ooh, there's a particular state I need to refer to, or there's an editorial guideline that I need to mention, or there's a specific format for this date. And then over time, add those details as you have time and as the, the project warrants. Maybe you don't even need that. Maybe just the list of elements on the right-hand side and the picture marked up on the left is all your audience needs to move forward. But the fact is that there may be a progressive technique you could use to add those layers of detail as they're necessary. The system also becomes somewhat of a system of artifacts, too. You have these different structures, and a team that might seize that documentation system thinks about, okay, maybe early in the process we're going to create a UI framework document. In the middle of the process, that's when we're doing a lot of wireframe drafts. And near the end of the process, we're going to do a design document that has a lot of specs about the pages and components, and that's really the focus. But they use the documentation system to at least set some standards around the kinds of documents they produce so that in a specific project, they can say, you know what, we're not doing a framework, we're just going to do wireframe drafts. Or in another project, this thing is going to last nine months long. We need to go through this deep process all the way around. And even a team themselves are flexibly using their judgment to make appropriate documentation decisions. But some teams aren't ready for wireframes. One team we worked with, it was the biggest utter fail of this documentation system, to be honest. They, they told us very early on that they're very, they don't want to be put in a box. They had a lot of other um, objections. But they kept telling the story of the one time our organization used wireframes, the engineer saw it, and a month later, even though we kept iterating and creating visual design, they came back and said, done, and it was a big implemented version of wireframes, all coded up in all its glory, and it matched exactly the padding and all the stylistic choices made in those wireframes. Well, goodness gosh, Gracious, that's not the problem of the documentation system. It's a problem of culture. But it also just might not be the time for you guys to create this big systematic effort to produce all your wireframes really consistent and really fast. How about you try and get wireframes into your process first, see what the role is, and see whether or not this documentation system is even warranted. Also, there's this aspect of standards, right? Anytime you start to introduce components or patterns or standards or rules into some sort of experience and you have all these predefined pieces that you might add to your wireframes, people start feeling like they're in a box. And so they start, uh, this is an actual quote from an interview we did where it's, they said, you're trying to create some formulaic design process and I have, will have no judgment whatsoever in terms of creating the best design solution for what my project needs to be. Instead, we try to talk about creating formulaic starting points for the design. Now, some of those starting points are more rigid than others. If the team's invested you know, $500,000 doing this, these particular types of components, guess what? Maybe your project isn't about changing them. But at the same time, this system gives you the ability to make judgments about which ones to use, which ones you need to extend, and which places you might have big open spaces or mini canvases for you to actually apply your own design skills to solve a design problem. Lastly, one of the managers we worked with said something that I really loved. I think deliverables aren't a place to stand apart from the crowd. The design is. The deliverables are just a way to communicate things about that design. And there are ways that we can use those deliverables and structure them and, and be more consistent as a, across as a team or perhaps even as a community that maybe we just do things the same way in terms of the basics of how we document things. Something like have a cover page. Does it need to be HHAPES' documentation system that's your cover page? 
No. But maybe there are principles that are built into this documentation system that you can look at and adopt for your own practice so that you look at different types of change histories and ways that you can archive an audited trail of how your designs evolved or how you can produce wire flows to blend wireframes together or honestly how you just chunk out a single page design to talk about the different pieces that you want to talk about. Ultimately, the system is about people and we have these different design uh, assets that are available to us so that we can recombine them in particular ways. This is depicting a lot of different design assets like wireframes, copy, comps, and maybe they're being recombined in some different types of deliverables authored by different members of your user experience team that are maybe even starting to focus a little bit more on the audiences that you're communicating to because that's the primary focus here. Communicating the design in a succinct way and in an effective way so that other people can get their job done. Sure, we've got a lot of tools on our tool belt. Wireframes is one of them. But it's up to us to really focus in a user-centered way, not just on the design we're creating for our end customers of our company, but the customers internally, too. Another final thing why these documentation systems can fail over time is that if there's no sort of advocate there to inspire and um, really lead us and try and help us communicate our design better, that's been more correlated with the fact that the documentation system might fail. Steroids aside, although I love to think about the documentation system as performance-enhancing drugs, Lance Armstrong's a good way to think about that, right? He's on the roads, and he's riding as fast as he can, and he's super fast. And to me, that's an inspiration to get in shape and, and do better athletically. But he's also someone that cares deeply and passionately about cancer and helping people. And he uses that also as a platform to try and help the greater community of people be better. So as we thought about this documentation system, a lot of people asked us, well, can we have those templates? And basically we're relenting. Okay, fine, let's just release it out to the community. Some people will like it, other people won't. But really the message here is it's helped us unify our deliverables. As an individual, it helps me communicate consistently across all the different things I produce. As a team, it helps us bring our communications together, not just as IAs, but as user experience designers more broadly. And maybe some of the principles that you see used in the system, if not the templates themselves, can help the IA community gain credibility in how we're communicating design across the range of artifacts that we might produce. So in terms of, are you interested in it? Well, then go to the site. It's pretty bare bones right now, but hopefully over time we're going to add some instructional videos. We're going to continue to use this as a platform to try and help people communicate design. And go ahead and follow us on Twitter if you like. So if you're ever interested in talking about deliverables, um, I'm your man, as is probably Dan too. We totally talk about it all the time during lunch, so maybe you don't want to go to lunch with us. But feel free to contact me, and I'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks a lot. To hear even more presentations from the 2009 IA Summit, point your browser to boxsandarrows.com and click on the podcast link. There you'll find access to the iTunes feed and more information about each presentation. Our heartfelt thanks to the organizers and sponsors of the 10th Annual IA Summit, the presenters, and of course to the global community. We look forward to feedback about future episodes that will be of greatest value to you, our listeners.